fans, welcome to another action-packed, stat-packed edition of the Charting the Territories podcast. My name is Al Getz, and with me as always, my co-host, John Boucher. John, happy January, happy 2021. We somehow survived 2020, and things are slightly better so far. I don't, I don't know, but uh, how is your 2021? Yes, cautious, cautious optimism is the phrase we are all using uh, at this early stage in the year. Um, But this month, we're actually going to go back about 40 years to the first quarter of 1981 and look at Mid-South Wrestling. And, uh, you know, we all know the phrase diamonds are forever. It turns out not all diamonds are forever because Don Diamond was not forever. We're going to talk a little bit about him, his really big push when he first came to Mid-South Wrestling, how his push sort of fizzled out, and then a couple years after that, how his career sort of fizzled out, and something we at first thought was a sad, tragic tale, but as my investigative reporter co-host John Boucher found, it's more of just a stumbling block along the path in Don Diamond's life, but we are going to find out exactly why he abruptly stopped wrestling in Florida in early 1982, what led to that, and we're going to learn a little bit about what he's been up to since then. We're also going to talk uh, about two key figures in the Leroy McGurk territory who recently passed away, Danny Hodge and Jack Curtis Jr. Danny Hodge actually passed away the day after we released our podcast. Actually, I might have been that that day. It came out on Christmas Eve. We had recorded it a few days earlier, and Hodge, I believe, passed away either Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. Uh, Also, Jack Curtis passed away not too long after that. And then from there, we're going to go to our monthly Stats 101 feature and take a closer look at the feud score metric. And one of the things I want to talk about, I have been working on uh, solving a wrestling history mystery. And so has John. Um, When we cover uh, the 70s and 80s regularly on the blog, we also once a month go back to the early 60s. And this month on our blog at chartingtheterritories.com is a look at the first quarter of 1963. And in that quarter, a masked wrestler who had never been uh, billed under this name before, his name is Mr. Zabo, that's S-Z-A-B-O, spelled like Sandor Sabo, but not Sandor Sabo. But he comes to the territory and he gets a really big push, ends up getting two world heavyweight title shots at Luthez, gets injured, and then disappears, seemingly never to be heard from again. So I thought it would be a fun little, neat little exercise to see if I could use my research abilities to figure out who it was or maybe narrow it down to a a couple of possibilities. And as we looked into things further, it took some really fascinating twists and turns. And uh, and at the point now, I don't just want to say, well, it might have been so-and-so. I think we need to do everything we can to unmask him and definitively say who it was. And we're not quite there yet, but John has been on the case. I've been on the case. We've dragged Brian Last. I've emailed Tim Hornbaker. I've talked to Scott Teal. We've talked to Tom Burke. We're, we're bringing other historians into this wrestling history mystery and hopefully someday soon we're going to release a special edition of this podcast where we cover the curious case of mr sabo 
Yeah, this is really, really, it's turned, it's gotten more and more fascinating with each, each turn it has taken. Yeah, it's, uh, it's at the point where it almost doesn't matter who it is, but the story of how we figured it out and the things that happened along the way to get there is is an amazing story in and of itself. So I, I hope to bring that to our listeners sometime soon. And in the meantime, you can uh, go to the blog at chartingtheterritories.com. And as always, we will go through our introductory spiel, where I get to say that Charting the Territories is a data-driven look at pro wrestling in the territorial era, with a primary focus on the Leroy McGurk-Bill Watts territory from the late 50s through the mid-80s. In addition to attempting to get records of every house show promoted in the territory during that time, we use the data that we have to create statistics that quantify wrestlers' achievements in a way that stats used in other sports can't capture, and that take into account the unique nature of pro wrestling. We have two main statistics that we will refer to often. The first is a spot rating. SPOT stands for Statistical Position Over Time, and it measures a wrestler's average position, or SPOT, on the cards. If a wrestler is always in main events or near the top of the card, they're going to have a higher SPOT rating than someone who generally wrestles in the middle of the card or in the opening matches. SPOT is a number between 0 and 1 and expresses a two-digit decimal, so a SPOT rating of 1.00 means the wrestler was in the main event of every show they were advertised on in a given time period. The other statistic is a feud score, with feud standing for frequent encounters using data, and it's used to measure the intensity of a feud based on how many times a match happens and how those matches are distributed over a short period of time. If it's just once a week for a few weeks, it'll have a low feud score. If it's happening in multiple towns with multiple rematches over multiple weeks, it'll have a higher feud score. And it's expressed as a whole integer and as a broad rule of thumb, a feud score of 25 or higher means it's a feud and 40 or higher means it's a major feud. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, John, Danny Hodge, um, you know, clearly a, a first ballot Hall of Famer in every uh, Hall of Fame dedicated to professional wrestling and some dedicated to amateur wrestling. Uh, Danny Hodge passed away on Christmas Eve of 2020. Uh it is not my place to attempt to uh, encapsulate his career in a, in a couple of paragraphs. Words can't do it justice. If you're a listener of this podcast, you're probably already quite familiar with Danny Hodge and his achievements. Uh, but one of the things I wanted to do was look at his career record, in particular, his title history. Uh, and one uh, title change that is reported on many of the major title history sites. And I wanted to dig in a little deeper because it's probably not a title change. And, and, and this is part of my, you know, diatribe against title histories and just the fact that they're, they're not as linear as, as we want them to be. So we're looking at a, a reported title change where Lorenzo Parente won the title from Danny Hodge on November 23rd, 1965 in Little Rock and regained it uh, on January 4th, 1966, also in Little Rock. I posted an article on my blog cleverly titled, Question, When is a title change not a title change? Answer, when it's a title change, unless it isn't. Uh, and it goes into detail basically the way the newspaper articles in Little Rock discuss this title change, 
I strongly believe it's more of a situation where the title is held up as opposed to Parente clearly and definitively winning the title, holding it and defending it for several weeks, and then losing it back to Hodge. There are some uh, articles where the wording is such that it makes you believe that Parente was the champion, but most of the articles uh, make it clear that it's disputed claim. And aside from that, the more important aspect is this is only recognized in Little Rock. And during that time from, uh, you know, November 23rd through January 4th, Danny Hodge is billed as champion in every other town in the territory and actively defending and retaining the title against various opponents, including in at least a couple of cases against Parente. So this, John, this is similar to something you talked about a few months ago on the podcast, the uh, Greg Valentine, Bob Backlund uh, angle in Madison Square Garden. So if you wanted to talk about that briefly. Yeah, we talked about, I think it was uh, October, the October episode we talked about that. And I actually think this this match in question was uh, from October of 81, uh, Valentine Backlund. And the key to this angle that, uh, that they overlook uh why it, why it seemed feasible to me, to, to, to young John Boucher, was that uh, Backlund and Valentine were both wearing black tights and black boots. You know, and there's uh, Valentine at Backlund in an airplane spin, kicks the referee over accidentally. Uh, Valentine falls on top. Uh, they roll around. Backlund falls on top. Ref counts to three. They're both stumbling around dazed but they're both wearing the same color tights and boots. Ref is confused and raised Valentine's hands. And the athletic commission's in the ring, referees everywhere, Arnold Skolin's in there, everyone's running around. Uh, and then Finkel comes in and announces the titles held up uh, because of the unusual circumstances surrounding the end of this match. Um, and, you know, this is only done in New York. Um, I always thought it was odd for them to do this angle in Madison Square Garden, uh, rather than, you know, the Boston Garden where there was no uh, TV on those shows, but they did it in MSG. Uh, Backlund continued to defend the title everywhere else. Um, it was acknowledged in the After magazines. I think I think there's uh, Valentine was actually on the cover of Inside Wrestling uh, with with the WWF belt around his waist. But by the time that goes to press in February or whatever. The angle was all but forgotten, and everybody was talking about, you know, the upcoming Snuka Snuka Backlund match or Adrian Adonis Backlund match. So it's it's interesting those uh you know, sort of localized title changes that are only acknowledged in one particular. It's just a weird, a weird, frustrating thing. It's you, uh, you know that's just the way things worked back then, and they yep. don't work that way today. And you to some extent can't get away with that sort of thing today. But back then that, that was uh, how they did it. And, and what's yep. really interesting is, well, first off, I do want to say that based on the article that I posted, uh, which includes some, includes some pretty detailed descriptions of, you know, how the newspaper and little rock covered it, uh, wrestling which I believe is the great his site. They actually updated their title history to more accurately reflect this situation, which is um, we're not, 100% sure it's a title change. It's more of a situation where the title was held up and it is believed this only applied to the Little Rock market, which is, uh, I guess, the most 
honest and accurate way to present it. But what makes it interesting is that shortly thereafter, so remember, uh, Hodge either regained it or, you know, uh, relayed claim to the disputed title on January 4th in Little Rock. It's then reported that he lost the title again to Parente on January 14th in Oklahoma City. Now, A, my research actually shows the title change might have happened a week earlier on the 7th. But B, as I look into these things, it looks to me like they were trying to do the same angle in Oklahoma City that they did in Little Rock. However, a legitimate car accident that Hodge got into the early morning hours of January 14th, I think, um, needed them to change the story, that they couldn't go through with it the way they did in Little Rock, and they end up having Parente pin Hodge in the first rematch instead of trying to build it out for several weeks. Um, And then the following week in uh, Shreveport and Monroe, Hodge is billed as champion and does disputed finishes with different opponents. I think in Shreveport, it's I want to say Carol Krauser, and in Monroe, it's Red McKim. Um, They do a thing where uh, they acknowledge Hodge was in an auto accident a few days earlier, and mid-match, he sort of collapses, and they want to award the belt to McKim, but McKim, being the noble babyface, refuses it, saying he doesn't want to win it that way. And after those two matches, Hodge is out for six weeks. Um, uh, presumably uh, from injuries related to the very real car crash that happened the week earlier. So it looks to me like they wanted to do this title held up angle in every town, sometimes with different opponents, but Hodge's real injury caused them to change course and acknowledge Parente's victory in Oklahoma City as a real valid title change, uh, and they recognize it in every town. So that's an interesting thing when we talk about the bicycle and how maybe they do things in some towns, and then it happens a couple weeks later in other towns. What happens if one of those participants gets injured, you know, along the way, and they can't go through with the originally planned angle? Uh, and how would that relate to TV if, if you know, everything was sort of angles were pre-taped and set up and it's just on a several week delay? What do they do to acknowledge a legitimate injury that causes them to change course? So another thing, John, I always wondered about, as we said, uh, when they run these weekly towns, you know, everything builds off of what happened the previous week and it syncs up with uh, TV angles. There are times when shows are canceled due to inclement weather. So if, you know, every other town has a certain sequence that match A happens and it builds to a rematch and, and there's an angle that, that sets up that rematch uh, as part of the main TV program, they can't do that if the car, you know, if the house show gets canceled. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I wonder if do they just pause, do they press the pause button and redo everything the following week as it was supposed to have happened the week before? Or do they just maybe run some local promos and say, you know, our show in Oklahoma City was canceled. However, the night before in Wichita Falls, the dastardly heel did this. So next week in Oklahoma City, it's now going to be this. Hmm. So these are some of the many questions that that <laughs> keeps myself up at night. Yeah. But uh, so, yeah, Danny Hodge, uh, like like we said, first ballot Hall of Famer in every 
Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame and some amateur wrestling halls of fame as well. Uh, best described as Kurt Angle without the comedy shtick for <laughs> those younger fans who uh, were not uh, around during Hodge's reign. But basically, you know, within a year of his pro debut, he debuted October 1959. Uh, the summer of 1960 is when he wins his first world junior heavyweight title from Angelo Savoldi. And he pretty much has a stranglehold on that title for most of the next uh, 16 plus years, um, or 15, well, 15 plus years going until March of 1976 when a car accident uh, necessitates his retirement from the wrestling ring. It's, it's like he's one of the few guys like to calling him a legend or a living legend, you know, beforehand. Like, it was not an exaggeration at all. The guy was, like, an absolute legend. Yes, unlike uh, in the ghoulist territory, where about once every two months they build a card as the biggest house show of, you know, the biggest card of the year. Uh, and two months later, they would do the same thing over and over again. This, this, when we say Hodge is, you know, legit and one of the biggest stars, one of the most important wrestlers, uh, you know, it's not exaggeration. And it's it's fascinating. I think Meltzer brought this up in his uh, in his obit, and this is true of a lot of guys too. Is that if if Hodge would be coming up today, he probably wouldn't even get into wrestling. He would probably be the biggest MMA star in the universe. Yeah, he probably or even, or, yeah. or even boxing maybe. Who knows? You know. Uh, you know, he had his shot at boxing. I think. I think. You know, in this day and age, MMA would have been much more up his alley. I think one of the reasons he chose pro boxing initially um, was because, uh, you know, perhaps he felt pro wrestling wasn't quite the same. And, and, and this was, you know, more ad adapted to his actual skill set. Whereas mm -hmm. if he had a choice between boxing and MMA, you know, coming out of college or in his early 20s, I think it's an obvious choice for him. He has the he has uh, backgrounds in both of those disciplines, uh, boxing and wrestling. So that makes him a tailor made for mixed martial arts. Yeah. Let's move on. Let's go fast forward to the first quarter of 1981. We covered uh, 1980. Uh, all of last year on the blog, the rise of the junkyard dog, the rise of the Freebirds, the big feud between Paul Orndorff and Ken Mantell. And in the first quarter of 1981, there's a lot of different faces. Junkyard dog is still there. Ernie Ladd is still there. But there's a lot of uh, new faces that weren't around in the early days of Mid-South Wrestling, which, of course, started in September 1979. So let's look at the title holder. Since we've got title histories on the brain, we will look at the title scene in Mid-South Wrestling in early 1981. The primary singles title was the North American Heavyweight Championship, and the grappler, uh, good old Lynn Denton, holds Onto the belt for the entire quarter. He won it back in September from Ted DiBiase, and he holds it all the way through the first quarter of 1981. There are two other singles titles. The Louisiana heavyweight title changed hands twice. Uh, Jake Roberts had it uh, at the beginning of the year, but Ernie Ladd wins it on January 18th at a house show in Shreveport. And then Jim Garvin beats Ladd also in Shreveport, but this time at a TV taping on March 14th. So it goes from Jake to Ernie to Jimmy. 
The Mississippi heavyweight title was held by Killer Carl Cox at the beginning of the year, but the grappler becomes a double champ by beating Cox for the title. Uh, and I believe this was on January 31st in Greenwood. As far as the tag team titles, Ernie Ladd and Bad Bad Leroy Brown hold the titles at the beginning of the year. Uh, the title history sites say there's a, a quickie back and forth title switch with Junkyard Dog and Killer Carl Cox winning them on January 29th in Biloxi and losing them back to Ladd and Brown three nights later in Lake Charles. Um, this typically isn't how they did it, but I have no evidence to suggest that that, that, that info is wrong. So uh, pending further evidence, we will accept those two title changes as happening. So a lot of familiar faces in there, but there's one that's not recognizable to a lot of fans and who uh, definitely was a newcomer to the territory, and that is Don Diamond. And mm. he uh, made a pretty interesting debut for the time frame. Uh, Ernie Ladd and Leroy Brown are on TV in a non-title match against Larry Clark and Don Diamond. And Clark uh, was a preliminary wrestler and uh, just a TV preliminary wrestler and Don Diamond was not presented as anything different. So it sure looked to the fans that this was going to be another uh, cakewalk uh, television squash match for uh, the big cat, Ernie Ladd and Leroy Brown. The heels dominate Clark and it looks like your standard TV squash, but then Diamond gets tagged in and things change. Uh, my friend Brian Ackman, who runs the Mid-South Wrestling Universe Appreciation Group on Facebook, uh, he told me this. After Clark tagged out, Diamond kept Ladd and Leroy on the run. They had their hands full and eventually threw Diamond over the top rope uh, and were disqualified. So Diamond then got a push on TV, winning singles bouts uh, week after week with each successive opponent being slightly higher up on the food chain. Uh, starting on the house shows towards the end of January, Diamond quickly moved up to main event status for a few weeks using our spot rating metric. He teams with Junkyard Dog for several bouts against Ladd and Brown. Uh, but it seems, however, that when Buck Robley returns in uh, towards the end of February, that he pretty much takes Diamond's spot. If you'll recall, one of the big feuds of the uh, first half of 1980 was JYD and Robley against the Freebirds. So I think with Robley coming back uh, and, you know, Ladd and Brown feuding with JYD and various partners, uh, it was easy to put Robley into the role that Diamond had been in. And this pushes Diamond uh, down the cards. He hovers back and forth between upper mid cards and mid cards uh, for the rest of his run here. I think part of it was due to attrition. Uh, Killer Carl Cox had left the territory in January. Ray Candy, who had been there as a part-timer, leaves. And they've got Jim Garvin and Jake Roberts in singles feuds with the Grappler and the Super Destroyer. So it's almost like they just needed uh, a, a, a seat filler for the role of Junkyard Dog's tag team partner to keep things uh, going while they were waiting for Buck Robley to finish up. I'm going to guess he was in Central States at the time. Um, so Diamond, you know, got a really big push. And, uh, you know, fans, if you've ever seen 
uh, pictures of Don Diamond, he looks like a million bucks. He's got that that perm that was, uh, you know, all the rage in the early 80s, you know, think of, you know. Um, so he looks really, really good. And uh, I could see why they would give him a big push. But it's just interesting to note that it doesn't last, even though he stays several months longer. And he had a, a pretty brief career that followed the same sort of pattern where he gets a nice push, comes in as a good looking, you know, young baby face, moves up the cards, but never seems to sort of break through beyond a certain level. So uh, one of the things I asked my, uh, my investigative reporter, John Boucher to do is to see if we could learn a little bit more about Don Diamond. And we found some pretty interesting stuff. So John, tell us uh, about the life and times of Donald G. Cox Jr., a.k.a. Don Diamond. Like I said, Don, Don, Don Diamond, born Donald G. Cox, Chicago, Illinois, 1957. The earliest appearances I, I, I found for him are early 78 Fort Worth. One of his early matches, I think I sent you the clipping, it was very funny. The ad lists him in a match against uh, presumably Austin Idol, but it was misspelled Often Idol. O-F-T-E-N-E-N-I-D-L-E. Yeah, I don't know. That's and a, and a what, was, what was my response to you? My joke response to you is who, who should have had their ring name be Often Idol? Oh, buddy. Old Budro. Buddy Landell, because <laughs> even though he was booked a lot, he was often idle. Yes. Uh, and for most of 78, he's working, uh, Texas working for Fritz, Paul Bosch in Houston, Blanchard in, in San Antonio, a couple of shots, Central State. St. Louis TV. Ah, at the end of the year, he's Pacific Northwest. A few months for the LaBelles. He was, he was pretty nice in Los Angeles. Uh, returns to Texas, late 79. Uh, it's in Florida during uh, 1980 where you start to see him moving up the cards a bit in tag matches, tagging with bigger names like Manny Fernandez, uh, the Briscoe brothers. And he, get, he got a fair amount of coverage in the after Weston mags around this time, too. You know, you'd see him in the, in the future star columns. Uh, works a couple months in Georgia and back to Texas to finish out in 1980. Uh, now, at the end of 1980, this is interesting. I think it was December 29th was the date of the card. And this was my first exposure to Don Diamond. He shows up on a Madison Square Garden card, uh, wrestles Tatsumi Fujinami for the WWF Junior Heavyweight Championship. What's interesting, in an article in the Mid-South programs introducing Don Diamond, where they talk about his his great showing on TV, they sort of uh, uh, retcon this, and they claim that because of his showing on Mid-South TV, that he got the call to work against uh, Fujinami in the Garden, even though the match in the Garden happened before, but might have <laughs> aired you know, in certain markets after yeah afterwards so they they did a neat little sort of retconning there i think they even said something along the lines of uh diamond was so impressive that wrestlers were you know standing at the monitors in the back watching because they were so shocked <laughs> that this heretofore unknown guy was yeah. holding his own against ernie ladd uh, hopefully they weren't standing at that stupid weird angle watching the <laughs> monitor like we see in the wwe <laughs> these days hopefully they were actually watching it but yeah that was just an interesting way of sort of tying in things um i guess at that point uh the Madison square garden cards were were airing on cable in in some markets and so perhaps this was a, a sort of a way to you know acknowledge it while at the same time linking it to what's happening in in you know mid-south and it's cool and they have a really good match um i think it's the third match on the card it was like 10 15 minutes but it's exactly what the match 
is supposed to be diamond diamonds able to hang with Fujinami gets in some impressive offense when needed the crowd is into it and both guys get cheered at different points during the match uh you know like we were talking I'd be, I'd be curious about the legitimate behind the scenes politics of how diamond got on this card um they the two guys diamond Fujinami had wrestled before at least one other time before this match I know one match in Florida earlier in the year uh Anoki was also on that card wrestling Bob Backlund um so and you and you and you see Florida talent a lot of times on MSG shows during these years. You know Vince Vince the Elder having a good relationship with with Eddie Graham and Florida TV on the UHF station out of New Jersey, uh, coming into New York. So there's a few ways which it could have happened. Um, but I think it was a really good pairing having Fujinami wrestle Diamond rather than you know throwing him in there with Johnny uh, Rods. Fujinami, yeah, with Bulldog Brower or <laughs> Tor Kamada. Uh, no disrespect, obviously, no. to those guys. Um, but Diamond was a good choice here. Um, and also Diamond Diamond can take a loss, you know, and it doesn't doesn't hurt anybody because, you know, he's he's not on the territory. Um, but, yeah, this I think that car, entire card is on YouTube. So I highly recommend searching it out if you're interested in Don Diamond. There's, and there's actually quite a bit of footage of Don Diamond floating around from 8081. Uh, quite a bit of Houston footage is really great, great quality match. Uh, you know, visual quality as well as match quality. Like there's one with like Les Thornton. That's really good. Uh, one against Telly Blanchard from early 81, I think right before he arrived in Mid-South. So there is footage out there if you want to see some Don Diamond. Um, he talked to, we talked about his ascent in Mid-South. Uh, after, you know, he heads to Florida, he's sort of in like a mid-card upper type role again. He, he tags Lawler on TV at one point against Funk and Slater. Then he disappears. Uh, like he's just gone. Um, I think his last, you know, it's like end, end of April, beginning of May, 82. Uh, and he's just gone. Like, I don't see, you see no results for him, uh, in, in the papers. Uh, and, and not only there, but anywhere after, after May, 1982, there are no known records of Don wrestling, correct? No, 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 no. I have not been able to find any. I do, I do, however, find another uh, uh, occurrence of him being in the papers. And uh, what was that? That was, allow me to read from the May 27th, 1982 edition of the Tampa Bay Times. Um, headline, six major narcotics distributors arrested in crackdown, police say. Undercover detectives arrested six St. Petersburg residents late Tuesday night and Wednesday afternoon as part of a three-month investigation police say has netted eight major narcotics distributors in Pinellas County. These people are way up there in the drug distribution hierarchy, right up near the top. So Lieutenant Gill, I'm not going to try to pronounce his last name. We're going to call him Lieutenant Gill uh, of the St. Petersburg Police Narcotics Division. These aren't street dealers. These guys deal in large amounts. Arrested Wednesday were Gary and Scott, 31 of 50, was it 510 85th Avenue, Donald Charles Shang, 22 of 2149 Bayou Grande Boulevard, and Richard Winthrop Barclay, 24. Uh, all three men were charged with trafficking in cocaine after they allegedly sold undercover detectives 12 ounces of the illegal narcotic for $20,000. Police said they also found 12 grams of cocaine in Barclay's pocket. Late Wednesday night, all three were in St. Petersburg jail. Um, $500,000 bail each. Arrested Tuesday night were Charles Chiarenda, 32, Carl Kendall Gilks, 29, and his wife Joanne, 25. 
Uh, Chilorenzo was charged with possession of diazepam, which I think is Valium, uh, sale of, and possession of cocaine, unlawful possessions of a firearm. Giltz was charged with trafficking in methcolone, which I think are, are quaaludes, baby, uh, possession of cocaine, possession of marijuana, possession of hashish, and possession of Valium. Uh, Joanne Giltz was charged with possession of marijuana, possession of cocaine, possession of hashish, and possession of Valium. That's uh, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Gill. Said the arrests were just the latest in a series that is not finished. Last Thursday night, police arrested William Edward Basemore, 30, uh, Madeira Beach, and Donald G. Cox, 24, for trafficking in cocaine. Police said the two men sold a paid informant one pound of cocaine at a hotel on US 19. Cox, a professional wrestler who goes by the name Don Diamond, was also charged with possession of meth cologne. Quaaludes. Uh, Lieutenant Kay said the investigation, which included the assistance of the FBI and the Pinellas County Sheriff Department, picked up momentum after those two arrests. Those two arrests led to the arrest of Tuesday night of the Gilks couple and Chiarenza, whom police describe as large-scale drug distributors. They are arrested at Cox's home. In total, St. Petersburg's Oh, in total, said St. Petersburg Sergeant James Ramsey, the three-month investigation had resulted in the seizure of more than 40 ounces of cocaine valued at $240,000, three pistols, two rifles, approximately 25 pounds of marijuana valued at $12,500, about 2,000 methcolone quaaludes tablets worth about $6,000, and 700 tablets of Valium valued at $2,100. All the arrests have occurred without violence. We try and design them that way, and so far we've been successful. That's uh, Sergeant Gilligan. He said 30 law enforcement officials have worked on the investigation in the last three months. Both Ramsey and Lieutenant Gill said they expect more arrests. All right, so, so that... Yeah, so a three-month-long investigation first leads to uh, two arrests, one of whom is Don Diamond uh, for a pound of cocaine as well as possession of a methquilone. Um through that, they then arrest uh, three more people uh, several nights later, and then the following day, three more people. So there's sort of a domino effect, and uh, Donald Cox Jr., it's acknowledged in the article that he is a professional wrestler who goes by the name Don Diamond. So, John, when you sent this to me, I was like, okay, well, here we go. Sadly, this seems to be another tragic tale about a professional wrestler. I actually reached out to some uh, some friends of mine and asked them, because I hadn't heard of this before. So I sort of asked um, Chris Zellner if he had heard about it. Um, and he said, yeah, some people know about it. And also that he thought that there might have been a bank robbery charge at some point in Don Diamond's past. Um, both you and I looked for anything like that, and we did not find anything. Um, but at this point, both you and I are thinking, okay, well, unfortunately, now we understand why he, you know, stopped wrestling, and, and probably the story isn't going to end well. But thanks to the skills that we both learned um, trying to research this Mr. Zabo mystery, uh, you decided to dig a little deeper, and you found out some uh, a lot more stuff Maybe not a yeah. lot more stuff, but you found out more stuff about Don, Donald Cox's post-wrestling uh, life. So tell us about that. Yeah, I found, I, you know, I, I just doing research and trying to, through the, you know, the, the, the after post-arrest, very curious as to what happened to the guy. Um, you know, I found several different uh, guys with the, with the name Donald Cox. 
across the, you know, that across the U.S. And I, I'm fairly certain the guy who I have here was uh, was Donald Cox, and he seems to have recovered. Yeah, uh, so we found quickly. we found someone who as the, uh, the whose age today is that of Donald G. Cox, who was 24 in May of 1982, and among the many addresses he that believed you know he's believed to have lived is that uh, Florida address that's listed in this article. So we're you know 99.9 percent sure it's the same guy. Yeah, yeah, um, you know, and. So in the early 83, you know, this is, you know, six, seven months after the, uh, this arrest, he, he opens a, a TCBY franchise, frozen yogurt. So it goes from frozen noses to frozen yogurt. Um, after that, he apparently runs a, a pretzel franchise for a few years. Uh, and this whole time he's also involved in like various sports, fitness, health businesses. I mean, he appears to have settled you know, in or around, you know, the Las Vegas area. Uh, and he has, you know, a, 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 a juice smoothie health food store there for a while called Juices Wild, which is a fantastic name for a health food store in the Las Vegas area. Um, and the last sort of business activity I could find for him was owning a, a uh, like a running a, a car dealership somewhere in Southern Nevada, uh, Nevada. And I found a photo of him on the archive, uh, you know, site for the dealerships page, and he looks he looks great. I'm not sure how old the photo was, but he looks fantastic. It went from oh gosh, this is probably you know this drug situation is probably the beginning of his downfall, and it turns out it was more a warning sign to him uh, to perhaps turn his life around, and it appears he did so. But John, you didn't stop there, did you? No, no. I, I found a couple of different uh, email uh, contacts for him, so I. I, you know, I, I reached out with a, a very respectful email because I am genuinely curious about the guy's career. I mean, the guy wrestled everybody from like Roddy Piper to Ric Flair to Junkyard Dog, Terry Funk, Fujinami, Onita. Um, and I was like, oh, I, I, I just, there's a three email addresses I found. I, I emailed the same email to all three. And uh, just a couple days ago, a Wednesday or Thursday, I got an email back from him. And, it, you know, he, he you know, re- replied within a few hours and it was like, oh, you know, he's thanking me for the email. You know, it's been a long time since he climbed into the ring and it's only, you know, only recently has he started, you know, talking about his, his wrestling career. Um, you know, anything he, he seems to attribute that because so many of his, his uh, guys he worked with are starting to pass away. Uh, you know, not even factoring in the ones who, who died very young. Uh, and he's sort of, perhaps because of this, of what he was involved in, sort of stayed away from the boys in the business. Uh, you know, next thing you know, it's 40 years later and here he is. And he he talked a little bit about like, you know, is going, I, I guess sort of almost like Googling himself, like going on websites and looking at, uh, you know, all the years he's worked and the titles he held and the title matches he had. Uh, and he spoke a little, you know, a little melancholy of how much of the time in his business that he didn't, 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 didn't recall and people he, he'd lost touch with. Um, you know, so hopefully, hopefully this is, you know, he'll be, uh, more involved and hopefully we'll hear more from him. I'd like to try to maintain some sort of contact with him. I don't want to seem too eager, uh, 
to, to talk more with him, but I really would love to know about his career and what he's, uh, what he's been doing. And since he lives where he is, you know, maybe we'll see him at like a cauliflower alley reunion eventually. I don't know. Hopefully. Yeah. I don't know when we'll get a firm update on cauliflower alley clubs reunion for 2021, but that would be a, that would be a great way, you know, for you to get back in touch with him is just to sort of throw that out there. Uh, uh, you and I talked about before we started recording a lot of times, uh, wrestlers that, that leave wrestling, just stay away from it and want nothing to do with it for many, many years. And you hear stories of then guys, you know, decades later showing up to, you know, one of the reunions or going, you know, participating in one of the conventions. And for the most part, they end up being very glad that they did. And from that point on, they become regulars. So, you know, now we're talking, you know, almost 40 years after the end of his wrestling career. Enough time has passed that, yeah, maybe it is time for for Don to, you know, uh, get back and reminisce and, and run into some old friends and foes. And uh, there's probably a lot of fans. You know, that's the other thing is he probably doesn't realize how many people there are like you and I, John, that, you know, oh, yeah. know this name, remember this name and are just dying to see him, you know, shake his hand, ask questions and, uh, and, you know, really pay him respect. We all grew up yeah. wrestling fans, all, you know, the guys that, you know, even the guys that weren't major players, the guys that we remember watching on TV in our teens are permanently etched in our brains and we want to know. So I think it'd be great, John, if you, you know, you know, figure out the right way, uh, to keep in touch with him. Uh, and yeah, once we hear something about Cauliflower Alley Club, I say it is now the mission of the Charting the Territories podcast to get Don Diamond to the Cauliflower <sighs> Alley Club reunion. I think that's great. I, I did. Oh, I, 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 I feel like I should mention this. I did find one other in ring appearance for him after Florida. Uh, and it does make sense now that I know sort of his, his geographical whereabouts makes sense. I found a, a random one-off ring appearance in June of 2001 in Las Vegas at the Las Vegas Pro Wrestling Academy. Huh. Uh, a wrestling school that I, I think uh, was run by Nick Bockwinkle, unless it was another one of a similar name that Bockwinkle ran. So he'd have been uh, early 40s, 43 yep. years old or so. And he had an impromptu match with Booker T., Ooh. Uh, the connection there being uh, probably being Scott Casey, who was a trainer at the school, having also trained Booker T. Uh, and Booker T won the match and it was for the UWF championship. This has nothing to do with any other UWF you've ever heard of. It was just... Uh, the name there gave these guys gave no. In my, in my mind, it's the Herb Abrams version uh, <laughs> because it, as weird as it may seems for Don Diamond to wrestle one match, you know, th nineteen years after his career ended, I think it needs to be for uh, a Herb Abrams holdover belt. Uh, that makes all the sense in the world to me. So there you go. We found Don Diamond. We found. Uh, some more info about his post wrestling career. And, and, and like I said, similar to how we've talked in the past about Len Rossi and Bugsy McGraw. Uh, it's important to hear the stories of those who found fulfilling, you know, lives and careers after wrestling, because we most of the time only hear about the, the, the dark side of the ring. But I think that we need to, talk more about those who wrestling was a thing they did for a part of their lives, but it didn't consume their lives. And when it was time to move on, they found something else 
uh, to go into and their their lives to some extent had happy endings. Yeah, things things could have gone very differently for Don Diamond or yeah. Don, Don Grayson Cox post wrestling, and they it, they they things turned out okay. It seems so. I'm very uh, happy. Yeah, happy like to I said. That. Sometimes an incidents like that can can just be a warning a warning sign, and it's all about how you respond to it. And like I said, uh, Chris Zellner thought there may have been something else. We haven't found any evidence of that, so it might not be true. Uh, it might just be the one thing that uh, scared him straight, so to speak. But uh, good for him. Congratulations to Don Diamond on all your success in yogurt and pretzels and <laughs> automobiles. <laughs> They're three of my favorite things, and not necessarily in that order. Um, yes. Uh, but you're looking at the rest of the roster in the first quarter of 1981. Uh, of course, on our blog at chartingtheterritories.com, we have the fancy color-coded chart that I spent way too much time putting together. But we can look at the main eventers in the territory, all of whom have a spot rating of a .80 or higher. On the babyface side, we have Junkyard Dog, Buck Robley, Killer Carl Cox, and part-timers Dusty Rhodes and Bill Watts. Um, Cox leaves at the end of January and Robley comes in a month later. On the heel side, we've got Ernie Ladd, Leroy Brown, and the Grappler, all of whom are here for the full uh, three-month period, uh, January through March of 1981. The upper mid-carders in the territory, uh, who have a spot rating between a .60 and .80. On the babyface side, we have Don Diamond, Jake Roberts, Jim Garvin, Dick Murdoch, Part-timer Ray Candy, and on the heel side, we have the Super Destroyer, who is Scott Irwin. The mid-carders, which is a spot rating between .40 and .60, are babyfaces Coco Samoa and Stephen Littlebear, and heel Paul Ellering, plus three heels who debut the very last week of the quarter, and that's Bull Ramos uh, and the Wild Samoans, Afa and Sika. Now, this was not the first time that Afa and Sika were here, but it's the first time they're in with a big push, um, which we're not going to see play out until we get to the second quarter of 1981. But the uh, Samoans first came here, and this was back when it was uh, the McGurk territory. Um, they came in for about a month in 1974. And right around the same time, there's another Samoan tag team, I believe, in Gulf Coast. And that was some combination of T.O., Tapu and Reno Tafuli. And this, this is a lot of time is the challenges that historians and researchers face, um, particularly in Gulf Coast. The ads usually just say the Samoans. Mm. And for most of the, the uh, McGurk ads in 1974, the same thing. So you have to dig a little deeper and figure out which which version is Afa and Sika and which is the other Samoan team. And, and what we do is if, you know, they're in the, the you know, Afa and Sika are in the McGurk territory for, let's say, April through early May. We can look and see where Afa and Sika are known to be in other places. And if the timeline matches up exactly, then we can make a pretty good guess that it's those two. Um, and with Tio, Tapu, and Reno, right around this time, I think, is when Reno turns pro. So again, you have to see if you can find the whereabouts of any of the three 
Samoans uh, to figure out which two are the version working in Gulf Coast. And these, uh, this is the kind of challenges that keep me up all night. Uh, you know, for example, we talked about the Infernos. Um, and at one point it was uh, Frankie Kane and Rocky Smith. And then it switches to Rocky Smith and Curtis Smith. And if you're unsure exactly when that change happened, the way to figure it out is to look at where Frankie Kane is as the great Mephisto and perhaps where Curtis Smith is by himself or as the blue Yankee or as one of his other masculine. So the idea, if we don't know which two infernos it is by finding, you know, Frankie or Curtis and knowing for a fact they're somewhere else at the time the infernos are in this place, then we have, you know, almost certainly you know, figured out which two it is. And I really want to make a, uh, I haven't come up with a good one. I want to come up with a, uh, to fool me once, shame on me, to fool me twice. <laughs> but I haven't been able to, I got to, I got to shine that one, go back and shine that one up as, as the cornet says. But. Yeah, and Tio and, Tio and Tapu also worked <laughs> as um, the Manchurians, the, the Mongolians, uh, you know, they, they sort of mixed it up. If we go further down the roster, there's actually a few interesting names to longtime wrestling fans on the list of preliminary wrestlers in the territory. We've got uh, one of whom is still active today. And that, of course, is Georgia legend. And I think he still uses the same workout bands that he had back in 1981. And that's Chick Donovan. But also in the territory, uh, aside from Chick, is Ashura Hara, Tony Charles, and Kelly Kaniski. And now, I don't know about you, John, but I've, I always used to get Kelly Kaniski and Kevin Kelly mixed up. <laughs> and sometimes I would get Kevin Kelly, the wrestler, and Kevin Kelly, the announcer, mixed up, too, although that's <laughs> less less likely. Um, yeah. But uh, I think you wanted to talk a little bit about Kelly Kaniski, son of a former NWA World Heavyweight Champion, but doesn't seem his career reached near the heights uh, as his father's did. No, and you're probably you're probably Al, you Al listeners. Why are probably asking why why John? Why do you want to talk about Kelly Kaniski? And this is a uh, this is barely six months into his his full time wrestling career, I think. Uh, and honestly, his wrestling career is not that interesting. Uh, what's interesting to me, however, is the the predicament of Kelly Kaniski, <laughs> the predicament of having a father who is a wildly successful professional wrestler and choosing to also become a pro wrestler and how that has sort of become an archetype of professional wrestling. And Kelly Kaniski is a, a perfect example of this. Whenever you have conversations about second generation guys, there's always the issue of nepotism or was this guy over pushed? That always comes up. But I don't really feel like that's the, that's the case with Kelly Kaniski. I don't really, I feel like he was pushed, like he was to his ability to where he was supposed to. I don't think he was over pushed at all. Um, when you listen to him talk about growing up as the son of Gene Kaniski and how this later affects his time as a pro wrestler, it's absolutely fascinating to listen to him or, or read these interviews with him because he talks about being a kid, having his dad being on the road away from the family for weeks at a time, and him and his siblings and his mom get in a routine where they, one night they go out for hamburgers, next night pizza, next night go to the movies. They had their own little routine, their own little thing. And when dad comes home, everybody's got to be dressed up really nicely kids in the best behavior and whatever dad wants to do that's what we're going to do uh it wasn't like his father was a domineering drill instructor type or anything like that it just seems like more of the old school like 50s 60s type of thing where kids your father is the reason we have all this and this is why we can get hamburgers and go to the movies whenever we want to but when he's here you got to be good we're going to do what dad wants 
Um, when he's a little older, he talks about like guys constantly want to fight him in school for no reason, just because he's <laughs> Gene Kaniski's son, just lined up outside the wall, the principal's office on a weekly basis because someone wanted to fight him. Where where uh, did he grow up? Was it Vancouver? I think, I think they grew up in Vancouver. Yeah, because okay. Kaniski ran was part owner, I think, of Vancouver. Okay, well, I wasn't sure if the the time frame was when Gene was was there. So yeah, that would certainly explain the kids in his school knowing who his dad was. Yeah, uh, you know, conversely, he always tells the story about you know uh, being out with his dad and doing something. His dad forgot his wallet, or something. Uh, so they go to the bank. And Gene explains the situation. Of course, the branch manager comes over and just whips out $700. Here you go. No paperwork, no signature, no ID, no nothing. We'll take care of the paperwork. We're just going to see you and your son have a great day. So there were some advantages. Um, parents got divorced and he's in high schools, and mom, but mom moved out. It was unusual for that time. So it was Gene Kaniski and the Kaniski kids at the house. Uh, and much to Gene's credit, Kelly says that his dad did, did or tried to do all the stuff that mom did, which is much to Gene's dismay, was quite quite a lot it's like the way he describes it's almost like a sitcom like you know oh, dad used too much bleach in the laundry again as the towels are ripping to shreds as they're trying to do the dishes uh dad never really told steered him away from the wrestling business didn't tell him not to get into it but kind of the feeling that kelly got from his dad the only sort of condition was you know finish college before you start wrestling full-time and he did he's a west texas state boy i think he's roommates with telly blanchard speaks very highly of telly in terms of like not just helping him with wrestling, but just helping him stay focused and motivated in the school. So I would not have pegged college-age Tully Blanchard as a motivational speaker type, but he helped Kelly out a lot, apparently. Uh, and his dad just had one thing to say to him before he went to West Texas State. Two guys stay away from Dick Murdoch and Ray Stevens. And of course, who's the first guy Kelly calls when he gets down there? Dick Murdoch. <laughs> and Murdoch, Murdoch would bring Kelly with him to the matches, ride with him, even fly him into the places where he was working before Kelly was wrestling full time, not even really in the business, um, which I can't even imagine how valuable this would have been uh, for a young kid uh, and also probably frightening riding around with Dick Murdoch or, or Ray Stevens. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, he talks about driving around Lou Thez when Lou was working for Joe Blanchard and how Thez for like a three hour drive would be doing isometric exercises for his neck and his arms and his hands and like this is in his 60s uh but yeah he's only in the business for about five years before he calls it quits and honestly there's like there seems to be a, an abundance of reasons for him quitting and i apologize i don't mean to sound overly critical of, of kelly kaniski but i'm not, I'm not going to say anything about him that he hasn't said himself uh first off he said his dad was not a great teacher a great wrestler but not a great teacher trainer uh so there was that and after a few years in the business, he just didn't feel like he was picking up on all those intangibles. Things just weren't clicking for him like they thought he should be. He wasn't, quote unquote, getting it, uh, his, his quote. Uh, and by 86 or so, he just didn't feel like he would progressed in terms of either skill or success to where he thought he should be. Uh, and lastly, sort of like the last nail in, in the coffin for him really was growing up in his father's era where he was enamored of guys like Fez. And hearing stories of Harley Race driving in whiteout snowstorms to make a town and wrestle an hour draw in front of 70 people, Kaniski didn't really seem to be a fan of the, the then I, modern idea of wrestling. You know, he's the interview where he talks about, you know, the guys come in, they have their faces painted, and they march around the ring, have a five-minute match, and it's over, and it's mostly mostly interviews, mostly talking and less wrestling. And that's not what he wanted to do. He was not good at that. 
you know, so he left. Um, but I would hardly call him anything, you know, it's very far from a, a wrestling casualty, anything but. He's had like a construction contracting business in the Pacific Northwest for years now. I think his brother runs a restaurant in the same town. You know, and after he had had wrestling, it was for him, it was sort of like, oh, so regular people just work eight hours a day, have evenings and weekends off and don't have to be back at work on Monday morning. This is awesome. Um, if anything, he seems a guy like more suited to regular civilian life uh, than that of a wrestler. You know, I say I say good for him. <laughs> I realize it's not for him. Got out uh, and never, never looked back. Uh, so that was uh, Kelly Kaniski. I, I, uh, it's interesting, too. What really struck me about uh, him talking about, uh, you know, not being a fan of, of the then modern wrestling with the guys with their, you know, put, their faces painted and marching around the ring in a five minute match is like you have this. And there was the stuff that just recently about the undertaker on Joe Rogan, uh, you know, and he's, you know, he's talking about current wrestlers. So it really is like a, a cyclical thing that you hear from generation to generation. Uh, it's, it's no different than music and the movies and TV, you know, back in my yeah. day, yeah, you know, really... they didn't have CGI. If there was a fight scene with, you know, a thousand Roman gladiators, they hired a thousand extras. They yeah. didn't just hire one and, you know, replicate them a thousand times on a computer screen. Yeah. Damn it. Uh, it's going to happen forever. It'll be ha it'll happened forever. It probably happened. You know, someone probably said those things about Luthez. You know, who knows? Looking at these, uh, the feud scores for the first quarter of 1981, we had a couple of big feuds. The biggest feud uh, based on our feud score is Jim Garvin versus the Super Destroyer. Uh, other big feuds are JYD and Robley against Ernie Ladd and Leroy Brown and the Grappler versus Killer Carl Cox. Now, on the blog where we cover the first quarter of 1981, we actually go into detail on the feud between Garvin and Super D. And we've got um, Brian Ackman actually uh, when he was watching this stuff as a youngster growing up in uh, in the Mid-South Territory, he actually took notes. Uh, about the TV matches and the angles and whatnot. And so fortunately, he sent me those. Uh, so we've got some details about the TV angles between Jim Garvin and the Super Destroyer in their several-month-long house show feud. Uh, it also lists on the blog all the advertised lineups for all known house shows in the territory during the quarter. In the 13-week period uh, that covers the first quarter of 1981, we've got records for 81 house shows. So that's uh, a little over six per week on average. So we've got a, a good amount of representation for the house shows in early 1981. Uh, as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, Danny Hodge passed away since we recorded our last episode, uh, but he isn't the only star of the Leroy McGurk territory uh, that passed within the last month. Jack Curtis Jr., also passed away. And Jack is someone who, uh, after his wrestling career ended, worked behind the scenes in the office, first for Leroy McGurk and then for Bill Watts. So uh, tell us a little bit about Jack Curtis Jr., John. Yep. So I, the, the, the first uh, part of my Jack Curtis talk, I wanted to, just for the, for the listeners and for ourselves, I have a little, little Culkin family tree we could run down really quickly. Might help us here. Uh, Jack Curtis Sr. started in the early 30s. Uh, had a damn near 30-year career all over the South and Mexico. Big deal throughout the South, especially Louisiana and Mississippi. Uh, and Jack Curtis Sr. 
uh, and George Culkin. This is where it gets confusing to me because um, I've read that they, in some sources, uh, say they were brothers-in-law. In uh, Gil's book, Gil Culkin's book, he refers to them as half-brothers. Uh, so it gets a little tricky there. Um, and George worked under mostly under the name George Curtis from the mid-40s to late 50s, early 60s, tagged uh, with Jack Sr. throughout the 50s. And uh, we, of course, we'd be remiss not to mention his feud with Al Getz that spawned over the course of several years and across several states. Uh, George would later promote Townsend, Mississippi, initially bring Townsend to McGurk, later running his own promotion, ICW, later AWA Championship Wrestling. Uh, now, Tom Curtis, what do you know about Tom Curtis? I, I know nothing about Tom Curtis. I know I know Randy Curtis, but I don't know Randy Tom Curtis. Curtis. Randy Curtis is Tom Curtis. Oh, well, then uh, I, apparently I do know Tom it, Curtis. It, it gets, this, is, gets, oh, this gets trickier, trickier still. Uh, I think he was the son of Jack Curtis Sr. Uh, but I've read a lot of newspaper clippings where he's billed as George's son. So I, 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 but I think that's incorrect, but I'm not a hundred percent. Um, he had a handful of matches in the early sixties before joining the service. I think it was actually a green beret, but 95% of his wrestling career is between 69, 73 after which he goes back into the service. Uh, now finally we get to, to Jack, Jack Curtis jr. Uh, just, just passed away January 2nd, 85 years old. Um, Started wrestling pretty much right out of high school in 1953-54, uh, wrestling in Louisiana, teaming with his dad, uh, and working as a single. A short, short stretch in the service, Air Force, then starts back up uh, in 58, which also starts college this very same year. And it's basically wrestling to put himself through school, Mississippi College in, in Clinton. Uh, and he, he dropped out and re-enrolled two or three times because he ran out of money. So... He'd have to quit school, wrestle, get some money, re-enroll, and then he did that a couple times. So he was on a, on like a five, five, six-year plan there. But he did, he did graduate. Um, in his career, he's for, we talked about, he's in Texas a lot, uh, Crockett, Mid Atlantic, Memphis, Gulf Coast, uh, McGurk, obviously, a lot of random Mississippi stuff for promotions that I don't, I can't even tell who they're for. Uh, you know, and it was mostly Texas McGurk the end of his career. Uh, wrestles through the mid-70s. Um, it's difficult tracking some of his career. We talked a little bit about this off-air because of where he was working. Places like Gulf Coast that are, you said, you know, you are sort of like dead spots for a lot of wrestling result sites and whatever, you know, random promotions would run in Louisiana during the 60s. Uh, you know, sometimes it'd be Gulf Coast, sometimes not. So we don't necessarily have his whereabouts for every every week of his career. We have a, a fairly good overview. Um, like I said, his in-ring career winds down uh, mid to late 70s. Um, and he, he wasn't as big of an in-ring star as his dad, but he ended up transitioning very well into being a very important figure on the promotional side, ending up as, you know, as the front man slash event coordinator for McGurk Watson, Mississippi. And... Uh, things get a little complicated for the Curtis Culkin clan in, 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 in late 1977. Um, Al, what was, what was happening here? Yeah. So as you mentioned, as you mentioned, uh, George 
Culkin, uh, George Curtis was his wrestling name. His real name was George Culkin. He and his son, Gil, had been the local promoters uh, for Leroy McGurk in Mississippi. Um, and as is outlined in Gil's book, gradually as you get into 75 and 70, particular 76 and 77, uh, they're not running as many house shows in Mississippi. And, and while they're promoting the shows, it's sort of up to Leroy and Bill Watts to give them the schedule. Uh, whereas they had been running Mississippi towns at least five nights a week, I believe. As we get into later 76 and early 77, that schedule is reduced drastically. So this is the uh, Culkin's full-time, you know, this is their career, this is their job. If they're not promoting as many events, they're not generating as much revenue. And at the same time, part of the fees they had to pay uh, McGurk and Watts was um, for the te- uh, their share of the television production and distribution. Uh, you know, however much it costs to tape the weekly TV and then send that tape around the loop, that amount is divvied up amongst uh, the various local promoters, and, and they each have to sort of pay their share. So as the Culkins are promoting less events and generating less revenue, they're still having to pay the same flat fee for these productions costs because even if they're not running house shows every night a week the tv is still airing in all of those markets every week so they have declining revenues and non-declining costs so they decide to split from leroy and bill watts and start their own territory uh, in the state of mississippi and the timing was perfect because right around the time they were getting a little frustrated with how things were going with mcgurk was when uh gulf coast championship wrestling was sold to uh fuller and fuller did not want the towns of mississippi so whereas the culkins had been promoting mostly in the western half of the state of mississippi now all of a sudden a few more towns in eastern uh, Mississippi became available. So they made a deal to purchase those towns and combine with the towns that they had been running uh, weekly and then less than weekly for the, the last year or so, they had enough to start their own territory. So they start running Mississippi. Uh, as you said, originally they were called ICW, International Championship Wrestling. And at first, uh, Leroy and Bill are not going to go away quietly and they decide to run opposition in uh, both Jackson and Vicksburg. And the local promoter for Leroy McGurk in those towns was Jack Curtis Jr. So you basically have uh, brothers-in-law or stepbrothers or half-brothers or whatever it was. You have a family feud on the promotional end. And uh, when I talked to Gil last year, he said that for a while, you know, there were some hard feelings, but that uh, they had made up. Uh, you know, at some point over the last 40 or so years. So it, so at least <laughs> there's that. Yeah. Um, but And when they ran in Jackson for a while, they ran on the same night of the week, four and a half miles apart hmm. was, uh, the, was uh, the Culkin's ICW promotion and Leroy McGurk's promotion were running head to head just a few miles away from one, one another. Eventually, I think, uh, I think, uh, McGurk blinked and moved moved his night, um, and, and eventually McGurk left Mississippi altogether. They uh, the Vicksburg foray didn't last that long. Jackson lasted a little while longer, but eventually, if if we call it a victory, the uh, George and Gill won 
the Battle of Mississippi because they ran Leroy out of the state. And uh, Leroy wouldn't go back uh, until, well, technically Leroy wouldn't go back. It wasn't until Watts uh, took over as Mid-South Wrestling uh, and made nice with George and Kil- Gil Culkin that they went into Mississippi with Mid-South Wrestling. And what's funny is all the ads for the house shows in Mississippi um, – on the bottom, it it very specifically lists George and Gil Culkin as local promoters, and and mm. sometimes we see that in the house show ads, but most of the time we don't. But I I do notice that uh, in the Mid South wrestling era, for the first few years, all of the shows in Mississippi, the house show ads very explicitly have that uh, line item on the bottom, uh, naming George and Gil as local promoters. And I know George was a, a well known figure in Vicksburg and probably Jackson as well, um, working, you know, in, uh, in, in civic areas, um, in politics. So certainly not a bad idea to name them, but yeah, for a brief while, the, uh, Culkin clan was, uh, battling one another, uh, tooth and nail. Oh, but, uh, I'm glad they, I'm glad they all, the, the way they got it worked out eventually for those guys. That's nice to hear. Um, but, uh, Jack Jr., uh, he sides with with Watts after the the split from McGurk, and he was with Watts up until Watts sold the, the Crockett in '87. Uh, and after after the sale to Crockett, Jack worked for uh, Continental. He was their uh, the on screen general manager uh, for Continental. They'd show you know they show him in an office with a shirt and tie. Um, I always love those segments uh, from territory aerial territorial era TV. The, the promoter. Or the president's office. He was, you know, he was the Jack, Jack Tunney of Continental. <laughs> yes, he had a desk covered with paperwork, a file cabinet behind him, calendar on the wall. Uh, I think he was on the show where they were transitioning from Continental Championship Wrestling to Continental Wrestling Federation. Uh, and he had announced the name change. They would be recognizing the AWA world champion and demanded all the singles champions surrender their titles. I think eventually he's written off TV uh because uh they were firing him because he was taking bribes from Eddie Gilbert and Paulie dangerously. Uh and after working for Continental, it works a similar role for uh Ken Mantel's Wild West promotion. I think they only existed for about a year or so until they Mantel went back to world class uh and eventually essentially absorbed Wild West using their T V as their B show to complement their ESPN show. Uh, and Curtis would be more or less done with wrestling by 88. He and his wife, Lena, moved back to her hometown, uh, Port Bar, Louisiana. Apologies if I'm pronouncing that wrong, where he worked as a high school teacher. Uh, and they returned to Vicksburg fairly soon after Jack Sr. was sadly killed in a car accident there out on out on Route 61 South. Hmm. Uh, once he's back there, I think it was 89, he's sort of looking for something to do. And his brother, uh, Tom, who was living in North Carolina, uh, pre- previously owned and ran both an antique store and a Native American relic museum. He had recently opened a military surplus store in Rockingham, North Carolina. Uh, and this was a great fit for Tom, uh, who has been spent 20 years plus in their service. Um, and I just you take a, a, a step few back in time a few, few years here. Jack had owned a piece of commercial property in Vicksburg since the mid seventies, uh, on North frontage road, uh, west of the Wisconsin Avenue overpass, uh, former site of the old Presley's truck stop and Sun Coon restaurant. Uh, Jack always wore around town this Greek captain's hat. 
you know, like he departed from the island of Santorini and crossed the Aegean Sea and, and just washed up in Biloxi or something. So he got the nickname Captain Jack. Uh, so the first business that he ran on this plot of land, this location, was a fireworks stand, Captain Jack's, selling fireworks. Um, point being, he already had a location for this new business. There was a vacant building there. So he drives to North Carolina, buys a bunch of stuff from his brother and his brother's contacts, and boom, opens a military surplus store, also named Captain Jack's. Uh, that business lasted until 95 or so. Uh, Curtis Bain blamed uh, Bill Clinton for the overall decline of the uh, military surplus store industry, saying that they had to buy surplus equipment from Europe that was more expensive and not as good. So he decided to get out of the business. Um, I have to admit, when I first read the interview with him talk, blaming Clinton, it sounded like comical. Like, what is what is he talking about, Bill Clinton? Uh, then I, I did digging around, and it turns out, well, in the national 1990s, the National Defense Authorization Act, Actually passed under under Bush H.W., which authorized the transfer of military surplus to federal and state agencies for use in anti-drug activities, uh, like the war on drugs, that whole thing. Uh, and then a few years later, under Clinton, the Law Enforcement Support, Support Office is created to work exclusively between the Defense Logistics Agency and law enforcement. So this leads to the 1033 program, which is what Jack was talking about. And to this day, this 1033 program, it's still a very controversial issue. It's one of those programs that gets curtailed and rolled back out depending on the who's and what's of the nation. Uh, anyway, back to Jack Curtis uh, out of Washington. But yes, Washington Washington ultimately was to blame for complicating the military surplus store business. But he's able to, to work through this. Uh, he had a, a business associate who, in addition to owning a military surplus store, also had like a salvage grocery business. And this guy was closing down both these shops. Um, he initially got in touch with Jack about selling the military surplus stuff, and Jack was like, no, I'm getting out of that business too. Uh, but the guy happened to mention the salvage grocery inventory, and a light bulb goes off for Jack. So he goes over and just buys the guy's entire inventory and opens Captain Jack's Dent and Dent. And that's like lightly dented canned foods or stuff that's like slightly past its expiration date but still safe to eat, like a discount outlet type grocery store. And that he keeps that open for like 10 years, uh, 2005 does very well with this business at the peak. He's got like six or eight employees. Um, and it's funny, regardless of whatever type of business he was running out of this area, he would always at some point be selling fireworks. Even if it was just during like 4th of July weekend or New Year's, he would have fireworks. He would always go on and on about the fireworks sales. He's like, these are my best repeat customers. If I only knew how much money I made on these fireworks over the years. But he was like a big kid <laughs> when it came to fireworks. He really, really liked them. So we always make a point of selling like only the best and the coolest ones. And people people knew that, so they would go the extra mile to get the Captain Jack's fireworks. Uh, in 2005, uh, the salvage grocery store transitioned more of like a drugstore, general store type business. At some point, changing the name to Captain Jack's this and that. Still bringing in the fireworks on holidays. Uh, at some point, I'm not sure of the timeline here, he was also like deputy athletic commissioner for the Mississippi Athletic Commission, uh, which regulates boxing, mixed martial arts, and of course, wrestling. So he's still still dipping his toe in the pool, even though he hasn't had a, been fully submerged as he once was in the world of wrestling. Uh, in recent years, he had scaled back his business, opening just like three days a week and ultimately selling the business in 2013. Sold it to a local guy, which is nice to hear. Uh, and the guy who bought it convinced Jack to reopen the grocery business. And Jack agreed to do that and help the guy run the store until he, he paid him off. Uh, and he did it. And he finally retired after 30, 35 years on that, that, that spot. 
Uh, I was so worried that this parcel of land had had gotten turned into a strip mall or a Taco Bell or a Home Depot or something that I like pulled it up on Google Maps and the stuff is still there. There's like a little tattoo shop. The salon is still there. The thrift store and the bigger building, the grocery store was still there. And it looks like on Google Maps, at least there's pallets and other items indicating activity, which looks good. Fingers crossed the last eight months haven't been too unkind to these businesses. I would I would like to close with a quote from Captain Jack Curtis about his success in business. Uh, and I quote, knowledge and dedicating yourself to getting it done. It's not just saying, I'm going to do this and get this done. You have to work at it. If you become a student of the business you're going to do, you're going to be all right, end quote. And what a wonderfully multifaceted life this guy led. Cheers and farewell to Captain Jack Curtis Jr. Our, our thoughts, yes, our thoughts go out to his widow, Lena, his sons, Jimmy, Doug, and their respective families. Sounds like a fascinating, fascinating guy. Yeah, so Jack Curtis Jr. and Danny Hodge, uh, rest in peace, both passed away over the last month since our last podcast. I, I know we're recording this uh, the evening of the day that Larry King passed away. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, seem, you know, it just seems like they're coming nonstop. And of course, uh, the day Hank after Aaron. Hank Aaron passed away. Me living in Atlanta, of course, you know, it, it hits even harder here. Um yeah, it's just, uh, you know, and that's another one of the reasons why historians are, are really scrambling things. As we're looking at stuff in the 60s, as part of our Mr. Zabo uh, research, we came to realize that of all the wrestlers that were in the territory at the same time as Mr. Zabo was there, only two of them are still alive. Yeah. And so as part of our trying to see if we can figure out who it was, we have uh, actually, we have um, through uh, Lou Kippelman, uh, super producer of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network, um, actually had a conversation with one of the two. And we are still working on trying to talk to the other one of the two to try and figure out who Mr. Zabo was. But yeah, as, uh, as you know, time moves on. So many of these wrestlers are, are no longer with us and, and uh, to fill in the blanks of, of history and to fill in these gaps, these are the only people that might be able to answer it. And, you know, you're asking someone, do you remember this random mass wrestler who you shared a dressing room with, you know, 60 years ago? That's a big ask of someone, especially when you consider that me at 49 years old, I don't remember what I had for lunch last Tuesday, <laughs> let alone even in my you know brief career in indie wrestling. Of course, I do have a lot of very specific memories, but to say, you know, did do you remember working with, you know, this guy uh, in this town, you know, sometime in this year? Probably not. Uh, you know, if they went on to become a big star, if something interesting happened that night, I'm more apt to remember. But there's a lot of guys that, you know, when I got back into indie wrestling in 2015, you know, a lot of guys, you know, uh, said, yeah, you know, we worked a show together or such and such. I'm like, all right, if you say so, okay. <laughs> I don't want to be an <laughs> asshole, but I got no memory of you, kid. Uh, yeah, but, uh, that's why, you know, we want to fill in these blanks, and that's why we have these statistics. And our Stats 101 feature this month is going to take a quick look at the feud score, as it's different than the spot rating. The spot rating, since it's sort of an average or, you know, similar to batting average, where it's like a percentage, 
it's pretty easy to understand the scaling and, and you know, what the main eventers who have a spot rating of 0.80 to 0.1, that's always the same. And someone who's a main eventer in 1981 with a spot rating of 0.90, that basically means the same thing in 1981 as it does in 1963. The feud score, however, since it's uh, a whole number and it's based on the number of times a match happens, is subject to a lot more variability. And there's a lot of things that come into play. It's based on how many shows the promotion ran each night of the week and how the wrestlers were broken up amongst those shows, whether the towns were run weekly or less often. Also, how, you know, how complete our records are. The numbers can vary greatly from quarter to quarter, but in a uh, from year to year, but in a short period of time, uh, the feud scores are a great way of seeing which matches happened most often on the house shows at that particular time. And if Jim Garvin versus the Super Destroyer, if their peak feud score is in the 60s, meanwhile, back in 1963, the biggest feud only had a feud score in the 20s or 30s. That doesn't, you can't compare those two. You want to take the 1963 feud and compare it to other feuds in that territory in 1963. And the same thing goes for 1981. You compare it to the other feuds in 1981, and you just get a better idea of which matches are happening most often. And really, there's no other way based on what data we have to quantify feuds. Uh, in a perfect world, if we had attendance figures, yeah. maybe we could do something with that. But we don't have that for a large percentage of, of the shows. And even when we do, uh, you know, what if it's not a main, what if it's not the main event? How do you, you know, apply a certain percentage of the house to a semi-main event yeah. uh, and and so on and so forth? So this the feud score is, is far from perfect, but it's a quick and dirty way of, of seeing who's wrestling whom on the house shows at that point in time and uh, which one is happening the most often. Yeah. So that's our Stats 101 feature, and that completes... This episode of Charting the Territories, uh, as we mentioned earlier, we are hoping to bring you a special edition, a very special episode very of this special. podcast where we discuss the curious case of Mr. Zabo, a wrestling history mystery. But uh, in lieu of that, uh, regardless of whether that happens or not, we'll be back next month on the 4th Thursday of February, and we're going to look at the first quarter of 1977 where Skandor Akbar gets a big push as a main event heel, but when he gets injured, they come up with a clever way, uh, a clever segue into his first real run as a manager. Of course, Akbar is probably best known as a manager, although he had a very lengthy and notable career as a wrestler, but most people equate him uh, with Devastation Incorporated. And so we're going to look at how his managerial career started. Um, as always, you can find me on Twitter at Al Gets Wrestling. And uh, within the last month, I appeared on episode 95 of the Winter Palace podcast, talking about Danny Hodge, Buddy Landell, and a host of other topics. You can check out the Winter Palace podcast at www.odessasteps.co.uk. Of course, you can check out the blog at www.chartingtheterritories.com. John, now is the your favorite time of the month because you get to plug oh. uh, anything you want. Anything. 
I have nothing. I have no appearances. Uh, I've, I've I've done nothing. But I would like to plug one of your things. I would like to plug your uh, your 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 Culkin ICW almanac. If anyone is interested in the the, the Culkin uh, Curtis family, I highly recommend that and Gil Culkin's book, uh, simply titled "The Mississippi Wrestling Territory: The Untold Story." Those are both really good references. Like we talk about wrestling history, um, for so much of wrestling history is in these smaller books by lesser known figures. There's so much important information in those, and it's really helpful in getting the the full picture of wrestling in a, a particular part of the country. I highly recommend that book and your uh, your uh, almanac. For yeah, the, uh, the Gil's territory. book can be found on Amazon. Uh, Gil Culkin, C U L K I N. Uh, my uh, Culkin Wrestling Almanac can be found at www.payhip.com slash charting the territories. And I will say next month, there's going to be something new coming <sighs> to the Payhip site, a new almanac, uh, a look at a wrestling territory from the early 70s, um, one that featured uh, a pretty significant event, a world heavyweight title change, but more importantly, was the home of my friend Dylan Hales's favorite territorial era wrestler. So that is coming in the month of February, and we'll talk about it next month on the podcast. And if you want to be the first to know when new episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingthepodcast.com. And of course, Charting the Territories is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Until next month, John, take care and we'll see you. See you in February.